Welcome back to the official Saster podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings with two B's on Snapchat. And you can follow the main man behind all things Saster, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at Jason LK. And speaking of all things Saster, Saster Annual 2018, the greatest SAS event on the planet, is getting closer and closer. And if you want to join the teams of Box, HubSpot, Dropbox, Atlassian, and more of the greatest in SAS, then you can. And thanks to the kind bank of Mr. Jason Lemkin, when you head over to drinkswithharry.com or enter the promo code drinkswithharry when you purchase your tickets, not only do you get 10% off, but an endless supply of mojitos with me, it will be a fun event. However, to the show today, and I'm very excited to welcome Jack Altman to the hot seat today. Now, Jack is the founder and CEO of Lattice, actually one of our partners for this month on the show, as you will hear. They are the number one performance management solution for growing companies, and Lattice have raised close to 10 million in funding from some of our favourites in the industry, including the likes of Miles Grimshaw at Thrive, Coastal Ventures, Elad Gill, Alexis Ohanian, and YC's Daniel Gross. Prior to founding Lattice, Jack was the head of business development at Teespring, where he saw the firm move into hyper-growth mode. Jack's also built an incredible angel portfolio, including the likes of Gusto, Opendoor, Instacart, Zenefits, and Soylent, just to name a few. And I do also have to say a huge thanks to Miles at Thrive for the introduction to Jack today, without which this episode would not have happened, so really do appreciate that. And we're going to do a little competition now. As you've heard from prior shows, our partnership with Lattice means that I'm very excited for the product. So the competition is, who can sell the product better? Me now in this next bit. I've had a bit of practice and, as I said, I'm very excited for the product. Or Jack in the episode. You've got to let us know on Snapchat, as I said, at hstebbings with two Bs. So here goes. If you're a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, whether it be hiring execs, developing managers, and retaining that top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one performance management solution for growing companies. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 performance review cycles as often as you want. And you also get this incredible continuous feedback system with OK our goal tracking, real-time feedback, and one-on-one meetings to make sure employees really get the feedback between reviews. So find out why the likes of Coinbase, PlanGrid, Birchbox, and WePay trust Lattice as their performance management solution by heading over to Lattice.com to start investing in your people. That's Lattice.com, the number one performance management solution for growing companies. What do we think, team? How did I do? You've got to let me know on Snapchat. The competition begins now. But we mentioned WePay there, and like us, WePay love Lattice, and it's thanks to my friends at WePay that I can introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Sign Up Genius. Sign Up Genius makes it simple for group organisers to coordinate events and people quickly. And with over 12 million people using the site each month, Sign Up Genius has done away with the need for paper sign-ups and reply all emails, and people use it to organise everything from school activities to non-profit fundraisers. And you can learn more at signupgenius.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like Sign Up Genius did, visit wepay.com forward slash SASTA. WePay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments, and you can find that, as I said, at wepay.com forward slash Sasta. But enough from me, so I'm now thrilled to hand over to Jack Altman, founder and CEO at Lattice. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Jack, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the official Sasta podcast today. A big hand to Miles at Thrive for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me. Harry, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'd love to get started, though, with a little on you and how you made your way into the world of early stage SaaS with Lattice. So I didn't intend to. I had been working at a company called Teespring before, which was an e-commerce company. So B2C, it was a sort of a marketplace, actually, for people to create and sell custom apparel. And that was kind of where I got the beginnings of my learnings about how to build a startup, how teams grow, how management works. During my time there, the company scaled from 20 employees to several hundred. And so that gave me a really good view into how companies work and what could be better. That was the impetus for my co-founder and I to 
leave Teespring and start Lattice. But when we started the company, we actually weren't super familiar with SaaS or the stark difference between B2B and B2C. We just wanted to solve a problem and it turned out that it happened to be a problem for businesses. But for better or for worse, what we ended up in was the world of SaaS. And so now I think in terms of SaaS metrics and selling to businesses and thinking about how you build products for businesses. And luckily, I really love it. And in a lot of ways, I think that B2B is a much more methodical, straightforward path than building a consumer business where, yes, if you sort of find the thing that the market wants in consumer, you can have sort of unbelievable growth. But there's a lot of great things about SaaS that I love. Things like scaling teams can be a very predictable thing and customers will tell you exactly what they want. You have people who have real budgets, so you don't just give them a free thing and hope to sell ads to somebody else. And so there are a lot of advantages, but the way that we got here was we just wanted to solve a particular problem and it happened to be a problem for businesses. Quickly off schedule though, how did you scale the learning curve of SaaS and selling to to SMBs and to enterprise instead of consumer? And what did that kind of learning curve look like for you? So, you know, the interesting thing for me was I learned a lot from employees of ours. So we got some employees at Lattice early on who knew quite a bit more about B2B selling than I did. And that was actually a really important thing for me. In addition to that, I consumed a ton of your podcasts, honestly, and Saster, things like David Scott, and I did educate myself. But that's still the real learnings, in fact, came to me through our own employees, actually. No, that's fantastic to hear. I do want to talk first about one of the elements that you discussed, which was the scaling of the SaaS org itself, and kind of talk about that changing process. So I want to hear, from your experience going from 2 to 10, and then 10 to 20 with Lattice, what are the core challenges to scaling out of these initial phases? in the early days of a SaaS business? There are sort of two challenges that come to mind when it comes to rapid scaling. And I think one has to do with the individual and one has to do with the company. So for the individual, the difficulty is that roles change so fast. So if you're the head of marketing when you're a five-person company, that means a very different thing than if you're the head of marketing at a 25-person company or a 50-person company or a 300-person company. All of those roles are so different than the last that the person who's in that that job, if they're going to by default stay in that job, everything that they do is going to change. And so for individuals, figuring out ways to either surround themselves with mentors or educate themselves through materials online, or in some cases they do need to find help and find somebody else to do that. But individual changing of jobs is so surprisingly fast that that is something that is, is one of the main challenges. The other side is that for the company, communication becomes so different. Communicating with five people in the room is one thing. When you have 15 people, all of a sudden you might need a particular all hands meeting, or maybe you need a team sync up. And then when you're 30 people, it changes again and and so on and so on. For larger organizations, a 200 person company does not communicate the same way that a 750 person communicates. So these things break down. The number of communication channels scales exponentially with the number of nodes in the system. And so figuring out ways to keep communication smooth and scalable is very difficult. I do have to ask, oh, I'm going to talk about both that separately. You said about the individual and the changing role there. We had Chris Caron on the show from Turn It In, and he said that you had to hire for three to four years out in terms of runway. How do you think about that? And then my subsequent question to that is, how do you do that and keep that very skilled person who's kind of overqualified happy in the current role? So I think that is a great goal if you can hire people who are going to scale through three to four years of lots of growth. I think that would be awesome. I think in a very rapidly scaling company or at a very early stage one, that might not always be possible. 
possible or reasonable to do. Since such a higher percentage of growth occurs, and I think the percentage of growth is what changes the difficulty more so than the absolute number of growth, I would think that in the early days or in an extreme growth situations, you might actually be doing pretty well if you can get someone with 18 to 24 months of runway. So it does depend, but you do want to find people who are not just going to do the job today, but if you can sort of in tandem with that person, ideally kind of see together where the company is going to go and sort of plan for that to be the role over time. That That's the ideal. I think it's really hard to get these amazing people early. One of the things that has always stuck with me and has been sort of a key way that I've thought about hiring early is looking for diamonds in the rough. At an early stage, you're not just competing for talent with your competitors from a business perspective, but you're competing with Facebook and Google, and Slack and Uber. And that's the other places that your employees could work. So in a lot of cases, looking for people who might not seem so amazing on the surface that are so obvious that everybody wants them, but people who are a hidden talent for what one reason or another, and you actually get the opportunity to give them the chance to do a role that they wouldn't otherwise be afforded. And in return, you get an excellent person who's probably too good for where you're at. So that can be a really symbiotic relationship. I'm really intrigued. I have Wayne Chang on the show, uh, former founder of Crashlytics. And he said in the early days, the first hire should be a recruiter because then you can leverage your time as a founder more effectively and build that team simultaneously. How would you respond and think about that with regards to building out the team? I think that's really interesting. So we have not done that. We're 25 now and we still don't have an internal recruiter. But I think that if you had the right person, I think that that could really work. And so I think it depends on if recruiting is a core competence of the founders or not. In my case, I really love recruiting and that's something that I've done a lot and it's something I like spending my time on. But if it's something that either you don't have a core competence yet or if you've just got the right person and you're sure you're going to scale early, I do think it could make sense. You also mentioned in terms of the different elements of growth and you said to me before that there's a trade-off between company health and the rate of growth. I'd love to hear what you mean by this. Let's start with that. We all would want to think in an ideal world that you could grow at the sort of speed of light and that everything would be healthy and your customers would love it and your employees would be singing Kumbaya together. I think in reality, it just doesn't necessarily go that way. And I think the truth is that there is just some trade-off here. And so you think about the things that might drive that trade-off. Are you going to build product for existing customers to make them happier? Or are you going to build new features for customers that haven't yet become customers? You have limited resources, so you have to think about these things. Are you going to spend just to have a CAC LTV ratio that is spot on? Or are you willing to spend a little bit extra to get that growth and that word of mouth going? Are you going to keep your hiring standards to the very, very top level? Or are you going to relax them a bit so that you can get the people in place that you need to grow at the scale that you need? So I think in practice, there are these little trade-offs across the board that you make. And the answer is usually somewhere in the middle for your company. But there are ways in which you can optimize for either growth metrics or business health metrics. And in terms of the growth itself, as we know, a lot of growth in, in early SaaS comes from the sales themselves. And so if we drill down deeper into scaling, particularly of SaaS sales teams, we're always told the founders have to do the selling in the early days themselves. When do you think you can add your first sales rep in your opinion? So I definitely did a lot of the early sales myself. But from there, I did things a little bit differently than I think the sort of common prevailing wisdom would tell you about SaaS sales rep hiring. So I think what you will see very commonly is that the sort of founder should do a lot of the early sales. And then once you have a certain number of customers and you know a little bit of repeatability, then you should bring in reps in twos and threes and you should sort of go that way. The way I did it was a little bit different. So I did certainly sell the sort of first customers myself. But very quickly, we brought in a sales rep who was really important to us. And I didn't think 
of him as an A-B test. I thought of him as a partner in crime for me. Go into these things together and we learn from each other. I learned a ton from him about how to actually do sales. He was able to learn from me about sort of the way that I do these very founder product-led sales where actually getting on the same side of the table as the customer and saying, how can we build a great solution together? And so I really was a partner with my first sales rep. And so we did that a bit differently and that that worked really, really well for us. Can I ask, what profile are you looking for in that very first sales hire? So for us with that sales hire, I was looking for somebody who was extremely creative, who wasn't obsessed with process, who understood our business objectives overall and had almost a company owner-like mentality about how we were making the trade-offs here. So he understood very well that it was important for us to do things that wouldn't necessarily scale forever. And he had a good intuition about the sort of trade-offs that we might or might not be willing to make around product or around the you know timelines we would deliver things on. And he sort of had a way with customers that was, hey, I'm here early. We really want to solve this problem. We want to partner with you. And so it was this sort of combination of creativity, product understanding, and much more of a partner mentality than you would often see. And that was sort of the profile that we looked for and that worked really well for us. So if you have that partner mentality and that kind of creativity inherent within the first sales hire, how does that scale out then in terms of profile when you are looking to add the sixth or the tenth? I mean, especially when you look back at your time at Teespring, how did you see that profile change? I think that's that's a great question and it certainly does change. And the main reason it changes is because the company has changed so much during that time and your understanding of the customer and of the sort of market and where you sit has changed a lot over time. And so a little bit later on and, you know, six to 10 sales reps is not such a gigantic sales force. But by that phase, you probably have a process that works. You probably have a way that you position it that works. You probably have certain ways that you do your sales process that are just effective. And what you're looking for at that point is more process focused than product focused potentially. And you're looking for people who can carry the methodology forward. And you're looking for those people who want to now scale something. So not that people who want to figure out how do we sell this product to customers, but we know how to sell this product to customers. How can we scale and do really well in our market? And that's a sort of different mindset. Can I ask how mentally plastic do you want sales reps to be in terms of their process and how committed they are towards it? Should they be kind of semi-flexible as to the process itself or should it be very rigid in terms of thinking? I think that flexibility is important, although it needs to have various bounds at various points. Early on, there should be more flexibility. As time goes on, you should increase the amount of rigidity, but that will depend on your business. It depends on certain things. The key for me has been to establish certain checks on the sales process. So do we make sure that you know we are only encouraging salespeople to onboard customers that they themselves truly believe will be successful with Lattice? Do we have processes where we coordinate with marketing in a certain way? What are we allowed to say in terms of product development? Because on one hand, we can't derail our product roadmap, but on the other hand, we're still a young company and the day that we stop listening to customers is the day that we will stop being relevant. So it's about balance. It's about certain judgment. And ultimately, I think what this goes back to is the sort of leadership team at the company being really clear about what the sort of vision and principles are for how you're going to get to where you want to go. You mentioned qualifying leads there. I do have to ask before we move into the scaling of marketing, what does the lead qualification process look like for you? I was recently chatting to Dave Kellogg at Host Analytics, and he said that the biggest problem most startups uh, engage with is that they have too much of a qualification process. How do you think about qualification processes and, and what does yours look like? Ours is pretty short. So we do a lot of our education up front. So people come to our site, they can sign up for a free trial, they can see our product 
product. They can read how we think. By the time customers are talking to our sales team, they're not totally cold. They're not at the very top of the sales funnel. And so we do try to qualify in a relatively quick way. I tend to agree that if someone writes in and they want to learn about your product, making them go onto a qualifying call and then set up another call, that's not the way that I like to buy. I don't think that's the way that a lot of people like to buy. And so there's time and a place for that. And there are situations where that's important. But I think it's really important to give your sales team the flexibility to give their customers the chance to buy in the way that they want to buy and what's best for them. And so qualification can mostly come in the form of, do I truly believe Lattice will make you better off? And that's why it's important to have a product that you believe in that you're selling because your North Star for qualification then can be, how do we do enough diligence to figure out whether Lattice will truly make this customer more successful? And if we have that mentality, everything kind of comes from that. And if we flip sides of the table from sales to marketing and scaling that marketing, I do want to start with with a quote from a, a prior guest who said, the role of marketing is to make sales easier. Do you agree with this, maybe from a meta perspective? So from a meta perspective, that's not quite how I view marketing, at least in the context of Lattice. I think there are organizations where marketing's role is in fact to sort of enable sales, potentially in a more enterprise organization this would work. But I think it does a sort of disservice to what the highest aspiration of marketing can be in our particular situation. I think of sales and marketing as partners who have extremely related but somewhat different goals. And so when I talk to each of our teams about what their sort of North Star is and what the number one thing they want to do is, in our case for marketing, it's that we want to tell the story about why performance management is so important. In a lot of cases, that will absolutely make sales' job easier. Really great marketing for Lattice might mean that by the time people come to us, they already know what we offer, what we stand for, what's good about our product. And at that point, they can come into the sales funnel very, very deeply. But by making sure that marketing is not just operating in service to sales allows the marketing team to have aspirations that go beyond just that. And I think ultimately, that makes the whole revenue organization better off. You spoke about the kind of customer awareness there very early on in the cycle. It reminds me, you've said to me before about brand marketing, instead of lead gen working really well for you, what was the decision behind this? And and why do you think brand marketing rather than maybe the more traditional lead gen works so well? So this is one other area with the, the early sales rep where we did something a little bit different than what is often the prevailing wisdom. Whereas I think the prevailing wisdom and probably often correct advice for very early stage startups is to focus more on sales than on marketing and to make your marketing efforts that you do have more about lead gen than brand. I think in our particular market, there was this opportunity to be a clear voice for why performance management matters and what it's all about. And I think that we had both a void and a desire in in our market and in our sort of customer industry to be that voice. And we were able to sort of start to kind of fill that void. Does it have to be a market of category creation for that brand marketing to, to be a plausible option? You just hit the nail on the head. I think that's exactly what drives it. And so in our case, and I've thought about this quite a bit where there's market creators and then there are people who enter existing markets. The way that we do performance management is weirdly somewhere in the middle here where performance management has been a well understood category for quite some time. It's a line item in you know budgets. However, the way that we talk about performance management and sort of the model of continuous feedback and making employees better rather than just evaluating them is a bit new. And so I think because of that dynamic where we were sort of straddling 
the line between educating and entering an existing market. That's why it worked for us. There, there are certain types of businesses, though, where you think it's also applicable. And also, kind of in terms of on the flip side, what type of business would you advocate for maybe a more data-driven lead gen approach? Yeah, I think for more like SMB targeted businesses, or like we just mentioned, businesses where there's category creation or a void for great content, I think that's where it can be successful. So, you know, one company I look up to is Intercom, and they did an amazing job with their blog in the early days. I knew of their blog before I knew of their product for a long time. You know, I think a lot of these sorts of businesses can do really well with that. I think for other early companies, brand and content marketing wouldn't work so well when it's much more important to actually understand the deep complexities of your customers' problems or of their buying cycles. So, you know, particularly with, say, an enterprise software company, I don't know that you would necessarily start with with a brand. So I think it really depends on your on your business. I do have to ask, do you struggle with the, the long cycles in terms of ROI on, on brand marketing and, and content? So there's not just even long cycles. You often just don't totally know. People will say to me, how are you going to measure that brand campaign you did? And I'm like, you know, we, we might not. And my head of marketing and I like to joke that his job is to burn money and then try his best to read the smoke signals. And that's kind <laughs> of like a, a sad way to joke about it, but it's somewhat true. But, you know, the truth about a lot of things that you do in early stage startups is the measurements that you make are either undoable or erroneous or misleading or incomplete. There are obviously cases where metrics really, really matter, but there's a lot of things we do every day in our startup that are not metrics driven. And so in a lot of ways, I think this is just one more of those. No, I I couldn't agree with you more. I do want to delve into the 60 second Sasta just for you. So Jack, 60 second Sasta, are you ready? I'm so ready. Picking a North Star, explain. So I'm a big believer in departments having North Stars. So everybody kind of knows and agrees that companies should have missions. But I'm a big believer in teams like engineering and marketing and sales and customer success to have the one thing, the one sentence that if you could only accomplish this, if the world looks like this, what would be success to you? And I think that's an important driver. Should independent uh, departments have their own budgets? I think departments absolutely should have budgets, yes. I think that if you don't have any form of budget, then you can end up not having clarity on how you hit your goals. And so every goal that you hit operates within the constraint of something. And most often, a goal is constrained by cash, whether that's in terms of headcount, whether it's in terms of spend. And so without general budgets, it becomes very hard to have parameters for this. One from Miles at Thrive. How much time do you still spend talking to customers? I spend a lot of time still talking to customers. So I don't spend a lot of time closing deals myself, but I spend a lot of time talking to especially existing customers. And I think that it is important that I always do that because you can so easily forget and you can lose touch for what the real problem is. And the customer can become sort of abstracted into this concept in your mind. And without knowing the humans and talking to them and hearing it from their mouths, I think you lose some of that in terms of your ability to do product, to do sales and marketing. And so I think I will always do that. And last quick fight, I want to hear, what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your journey with Lassus? I wish I knew what it sounded like when a customer is really serious about buying so that I didn't get tricked by, that sounds cool, I'll give it a shot, as opposed to, I really need that one, can it be ready? I do want to finish, though, today on the theme that we slightly touched on pre the quickfire, being metrics, obviously something we're all completely obsessed by in SaaS. Shan Sinhart High Five said on the show the other day, uh, the primary metric for him is always payback period. I'm intrigued. What's your guiding metric you use to determine the health of Lattice? So on the go-to-market side, I do tend to agree that payback period is a really fantastic metric. 
some other metrics are a little difficult, especially in the early days, because you don't necessarily know what your LTV is and you don't know what renewals and upsells and churn will look like. And so the nice thing about payback is it at a minimum tells you we need to keep people for this long in order to make our money back. So on the go-to-market, that is the one that I think the most about. On the customer health side, we track NPS closely and we care a lot about it. So I know it's not a perfect metric and it won't tell you everything, but in a lot of ways, I think it's the best that we have. And I think it does give you a great guidepost and it makes sure that the business is obsessively focused on how much do our existing customers like us? Are we at the point where they want to tell all their friends about us? So those are probably the two that I care the most about. And then final one that I do have to touch on, considering payback was just brought up, is kind of sales rep productivity, ramp times, and how you think about sales rep payback. How do you think about that sales rep productivity and the ramp time? Yeah, so we've seen a relatively quick ramp for our account executives at Lattice. So a lot of this has to do with the fact that our cycles are very short relative to, say, a more enterprise software. And so people get at bats quickly and we can adjust and iterate very, very quickly. And so because of that, I think we've been able to get reps to be productive in month two or three, as opposed to having to wait for you know month five or six. That helps quite a bit. Because of our sort of model where we do inbound sales at a really high velocity and we consider ourselves to be very consultative, we have to do certain things differently. So qualifying and disqualification are really important. And like you mentioned before, doing those at sort of the right level of qualification, disqualification is very important. Sales velocity is, is really critical for us because we have so many potential customers to talk to, making sure that we have scalable processes for how we have these conversations is, is really critical. And Jack, I'm sure you'll have many, many more happy customers in the future. But thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. What a fantastic guest Jack was to have on the show there, and incredible to hear the mechanics behind all things Lattice. And we do want to say, not only do we love the product that is Lattice, but the team have just been incredible to work with, and we're super proud to be partners with them for this month. Again, a big hand to Miles at Thrive for the introduction, so appreciate that. And as we said at the beginning, we would absolutely love to see you at SAST Annual 2018, and you can buy tickets in two ways. You can either head over to the site, drinkswithharry.com, where you can buy your tickets and get 10% off and unlimited mojitos with me, what could be more tempting, or you can head over to Eventbrite's site where you can enter the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY and you'll get the same deal 10% off with unlimited mojitos. It'd be fantastic to see you there. And if today's episode did not convince you that you have to sign up for Lattice for you and your organisation, then I'm going to try one more time. If you're a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, whether that be hiring execs, developing managers and retaining that top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one performance management solution for growing companies. It's no wonder having heard how brilliant Jack was. But with Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 performance review cycles as often as you want. And you also get this incredible continuous feedback system with OKR goal tracking, real-time feedback, and one-on-one meetings to make sure employees get feedback between reviews. So find out why the likes of Coinbase, PlanGrid, Birchbox, and WePay trust Lattice as their performance management solution by heading over to Lattice.com to start investing in your people. That's Lattice.com, the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And we mentioned WePay there as loving Lattice, and it's thanks to my friends at WePay that I can introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, SignUp Genius. Now, SignUp Genius makes it simple for group organizers to coordinate events and people quickly. With over 12 million people using the site each month, SignUp Genius has done away with the need for paper signups and reply all emails, and people use it to organize everything from school activities to non-profit fundraisers to business training sessions. And you can learn more at signupgenius.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like SignUp Genius did, simply head over to WePay.com 
patreon.com forward slash sasta, WePay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's WePay.com forward slash sasta. As always, from everyone at sasta, we so appreciate your support. We've got a very exciting new project coming, more and more episodes to come, and we cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.